welcome to The Current Thing with me, Nick Dixon, where we talk about politics, the culture war, and anything else that comes up. And today we have the king of the culture war, the saint of anti-woke. It's your friend and mine, Mr. Andrew Doyle. Thanks for doing the show, Andrew. That's very grandiose as an introduction, <laughs> but I like it. I think more That's people who should you are. that. Yeah. That's how I think of you. I called you Saint Andrew Doyle in a, an article for the Daily Skeptic the other day, and I wasn't joking <laughs> because you've done so much for free speech, the anti-woke movement, you know, just for just for all of us. And you've, you know, helped me get a, a, a job, which is, you know, doesn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> so there is that. And your new book is out. Mm. It's out in paperback. I have the hardback. You've got the hardback. Because I'm a h- hardcore fan. And I've also got three bookmarks on it because I'm making notes on it and stuff like that. Read it. I've actually listened to the audio, but then I've gone to look at the notes in there. Oh, no, you listen so to I'm the a, audio. So I'm a super fan. You see, I'm, I don't like the audio because I had to do it myself. And I don't like I thought it was I, really good. You read it really well. Yeah, I don't like the sound of my own voice. And also, it's a long, protracted procedure. Like, it's, it's days and days of just talking slowly. I'm talking much, much more slowly in, in the audio than I do naturally. So it feels You're being good. too self deprecating, Andrew. It's a very well read audio. Oh, well, thank you. And um, I recommend people get it in audio or paperback or hardback. And so, well, it was out last week in paperback. It was out last week in paperback. There is an advantage to the book, the hard copy form, because it has all the footnotes in, uh, which the audio does not. So that would be my pitch for the old school physical copies. Yes. And in case I forgot to say, it's called The New Puritans. I've also read your other one, Free Speech. I thought actually maybe we could start actually with a quote from your old, older book, which is Free Speech and Why It Matters. That's correct, isn't it? And uh, you have this quote about free speech. It is, it is detested by tyrants because it empowers their captive subjects. It is mistrusted by Puritans because it is the wellspring of subversion. Very nice quote. But I, but I wanted to ask about this. Are we losing, or have we even lost, the liberal argument for free speech, Andrew? I don't think it's one that is uh, definitively lost or won at any given time. I think it's an ongoing discussion that will never go away. That's why in the book Free Speech, I make the case that it's... Uh, it's something you have to sort of fight for in every successive generation. You don't just sort of win free speech and then that's it. Your country's got freedom forevermore uh, because it doesn't come naturally to us. And we know it doesn't come naturally to us because around the world, the vast majority of civilizations, countries, uh, not just at the moment, but throughout history, have, have never had it. Um, so uh, it is something in the nature of humanity that uh, inches towards uh, the corruption of power um, and so therefore, given those circumstances, we have to keep making the case. So... Uh, yeah, that's my feeling about it. I'm not afraid of the discussion and I don't think we should tire of the discussion because there's always going to be people who want to curb the speech rights of others. Uh, that's always been the case. All right, that makes sense. But so it's interesting, yeah, you think we're always sort of inching towards tyranny and and it's not a universal value that which doesn't come naturally to us, free speech or freedom. What about this idea from um, Carl Benjamin? So I sometimes think of this podcast as a, an evolving conversation, or I would if that term wasn't too pretentious for someone from the North. And um, Carl Benjamin came on the show. Now, of course, to some normies, he's sort of internet man bad, but I think he's a, he's a deep thinker and he's read a lot of big books. And he has a very interesting theory about postmodern traditionalism. And his idea was basically this. The liberal idea of universal values isn't working. So what, what we should try and do is sort of beat the postmodern left on their own terms. So he said they have a point that there is subjectivity. People perceive the world in their own way and it's not necessarily inherently better or worse than anyone else's. And he's kind of accepted that. And he said, okay, well, what about the fact that as English people from England, we have certain values we prefer. He calls them our tribal gods. Things like free speech, civil liberties, fair play, cup of tea, whatever. 
And he sort of says, what if we appeal to them on, on those grounds? Like you say so, like something like the LGBTQ plus community is a thing. And I say, okay, the English community is a thing with certain values. And you, on your own terms, even though you, I accept your radical subjectivity and your cultural relativism, but you have to recognize that we're also a culture. How about that? Well, in a sense, uh, that would work so long as everyone agrees to play by the same rules. It, it's actually the same problem that you face with the, the liberal approach, which is that the truth is not everyone is a liberal. And, and, will, and, and is not liberal-minded. Uh, in that case, so let's take that idea of the, uh, the postmodern view of subjectivity and that, that we all see the world differently. That's actually not a controversial view and all specific to postmodernism. That's something that I think we can all agree on. The difference is the postmodernists uh, b- believe that there are multiple truths because our understanding of reality is wholly constructed through language. Um, and that, that's, a, that's a fundamental distinction. It's also why they see the world the way they do and why they see words as potential forms of violence and that kind of thing. But if you were to say, well, we have a shared notion of what it means uh, to be, uh, well, you say English, were you saying English or British or something, or with whatever it might be, within this community, we have a, a, a sort of nexus of shared values and you have your shared values in that other community. The first problem you face there is that there are likely to be overlaps. You know, there's definitely overlaps between those who consider themselves English and those who consider themselves part of the LGBTQ+. It's not as though once you go into that acronym, you sort of surrender any sort of uh, nationality. So the two things are sort of overlapping for a start. There will also be disputes within each of those communities. I don't think you'll find even two people with, who are very patriotic to agree on absolutely everything and what it means to be uh an English person or an Irish person or a Scottish person, whatever that might be. So you've, you've got to find a way to uh, take on board the reality uh, that we all have multiple preferences and subjective views. And that's what liberalism does. So and just to come back to that point, if you're talking about uh, appealing to the woke on their own terms, you know, that we are a, we are a community that deserve protection with our own truths as well. But they don't recognize certain truths. They're full of contradictions. They will say that, you know, we, we, there are multiple truths, but yours is beyond the pale and therefore we need to quash it and eliminate it. And they, they, because they are an essentially authoritarian movement, that appeal to your own identity politics is one that they will never accept. They just won't accept it. Um, they, will, they believe it, it needs to be wiped out of existence. So that's why I'm not sure that would, that would work. Um, whereas the liberal approach is the best approach because what it says is that we... You can do whatever you want. You can identify however you want, behave however you want, right up until the point that you are encroaching on somebody else's rights. And that strikes me as, uh, not, you know, it's never going to be ideal because not everyone's a liberal. So you're always going to get this pushback. That's what we're seeing at the moment through the woke. You know, they, they, they're anti-liberal. They're essentially, the word woke I say in the book is the closest synonym, synonym to it is anti-liberal. I think that's right. And they are just continually pushing back against that. And we have to find ways to sort of work around them in a liberal society because the rest of us want want we want to have our rights to, you know, uh, behave as we do and, and live the lives we want to live. But we also want them to have their rights and their, uh, so they can live the way that they live. And and although they reject that uh, and they want to see us quashed, that to me is the only way a workable society can really function unless you go down the route of tyranny. And I don't want to go down the route of tyranny. Hmm. Well, excellent answer, as one would expect. But yeah, that's one of the flaws I thought with Carl's thing is that he even says in a speech about it called uh, Why Free Speech Arguments Aren't Persuasive, he, he points out that there always has to be 
a moral obligation felt by our oppressors or whoever, whatever you want to call them. So in slavery would be just one example. Mm. The people doing it had to say, oh, actually, we think this is wrong. We're going to end this. Not all of them, but enough of them to end it. So um, at least in parts of the world, anyway, still goes on, of course. But so that was, that was the weakness, I thought. He sort of admits that the people who we'd be appealing to for redress despise us. Uh, so he's talking about whoever his whoever he means there, the elites or whoever he means, mm. the sort of global, whatever he means, perhaps he means the sort of global elites who are captured by wokeness, something like that. So that did seem to me the flaw of that. But when he, but so, but perhaps he's talking about persuading, I don't want to paraphrase him badly, but the, persuading the average person, he's saying it will, it will seem to be inherently fair if you say those are your community values, these, these are mine. But I, yeah, I think you've done a Well, it's a good rooted job. around identity, isn't it? And so, and inevitably, yeah. um, if one group becomes dominant and is pushing identity politics, then other groups who don't fit into that bracket will push their own form of identity politics. That that was always going to be predictable. Um, and that, yeah. that's, you know. Well, he admits as well that in their identity, he says, that's why he says he's English, because he says he used to be a liberal. It didn't work. This idea of the universal man, you know, sort of self-made, not tied to specific time and place. He now sees the flaw of that and says, look, you're going to come at me with this identity. Okay, my identity is English. This has to be respected. And he admits that, you know, their their tribal gods are opposite to ours. Like free speech is a demon to them. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it, that's it, right. So, so he, he recognizes that. So I suppose the question, yeah, I should have asked him is like, who are you appealing to when you when you try and come up with this fair exchange? Because it assumes some kind of third interlocutor sort of watching it all, doesn't it? Who who is reasonable? And I suppose if the elites are captured by wokeness, there isn't that. I mean, he's right that the. Uh the liberal project hasn't produced a utopia uh, it, it hasn't made everything perfect that's also what the uh, critical race theorists believe and 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 uh, all, all the identitarians on the left believe the same thing is that liberalism i think where we part ways is that i think a lot of people see the failure of the liberal project to produce a perfect society as evidence that liberalism has failed whereas i see it as evidence that liberalism is an ongoing project and will never never reach that high point that's the whole point of it it recognizes that we live in an imperfectible world and i and i see those who 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 try to push against that almost as utopians they they think that that is possible so for instance that you know if you read the early critical race theorist texts you know uh, by, uh, by the likes of uh, Bell and Delgado, and they talk about how uh, critical race theory is an anti-liberal project because the because racism still exists in our society even though there are legal protections against it, and that shows that liberalism is a failed project, and therefore they have to push back against it. But what I think it shows is that uh, you will never eliminate racism; there will always be elements of that. But what you can do is you can stand up against it as and when it occurs, uh, and 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 move. To, and at least move in the right direction. That's all that we've ever, that liberals have ever claimed we can do. And look, it works. I mean, you know, you go back to the 1960s, compare that to today in terms of uh, equal rights for different races. It's, it's, you wouldn't have been able to anticipate uh, the progress that has made back then. You know, we've done so well. Liberalism works and has been working and keeps on working. And the, uh, the woke movement turned up in the early 2010s and, and, uh, and fucked it basically and uh, derailed it hugely sorry i don't know if i'm allowed to swear on your pocket i know you don't approve from a moral perspective <laughs> but uh um it's more of a youtube perspective but yeah it's fine andrew for you we can break the rules but um i you sound can like for that. you can you can bleep we can it. bleep it yeah, i don't mind being just, censored it's more work for someone someone other but um yeah probably my producer jason but i tell you what 
For a second there, Andrew, it sounded like you were saying liberalism has never been properly tried. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm saying it has because I'm saying the, these yeah. failures are evidence that it's are part of it, right? Yeah. You know, At the if, end, if, I realise you weren't saying that. If part of communism was the, the massacre of millions, if that was written in the Communist Manifesto that we're going to be doing that, then, you know, you would say that that has, uh, has been implemented properly, but it hasn't. Okay. What about, um, very interesting, what about this little take from Michael Knowles in his book, where he puts a kind of conservative spin mm. on free speech. It may be more of a a spin than anything else, maybe it's just definition. But he says, as long as conservatives defend free speech as a neutral, natural state, rather than as a substantive product of our culture's keenest insights and best traditions, we will lose. The radicals recognize that speech rests on an established conception of the good. By failing to recognize this, we're effectively mounting a retreat, leaving radicals to redefine the good and abolish what we call free speech itself. So his idea is that we have something called speech standards mm. and our conception of free speech isn't some free for all. It's a sort of accumulated wisdom of certain standards. What, what do you make of that? How is he defining free speech precisely? I mean, is he, is he defining it in the way that we would, which is that, you know, you should have the freedom to say whatever you want without being arrested by the state or prevented to speak by the state or in the modern world, in the digital age, by, uh, by big tech or by societal pressure. Those, various, those are the various... Yeah, from my recollection, he's saying the United States Constitution has free speech but it also has certain you know bar- uh, boundaries on it like fighting words for example mm. which we you know the usual ones we all know incitement or whatever fighting words as they're called in the constitution so he's saying the constitution has free speech first amendment but it already within that conception of free speech actually is a moral judgment it's a set of moral values that aren't completely free and that and, and that we need to defend that against the kind of the the woke and actually say that's really what we're arguing for is a certain set of values over their set of values mm, interesting um i mean is he depending there is he <clears throat> what is he trying to root free speech in is he saying it's a specifically western conceptualization does that what he is that what he means i think i think we i could be wrong but since he's american they tend to be quite american-centric i think he's talking about the American conception of it in in the Constitution. Right, okay. Okay, well, um, okay, if we're talking about the First Amendment, we can talk about the First Amendment. So the First Amendment is, it's not, the First Amendment is actually more to do with interference from the state, isn't it? That you've got the right to express so, yourself in whatever in whatever way you like, but you without the state interfering. So it's a kind of a negative right. Um, it's, uh, I'm just trying to grapple with what he, what precisely he's trying to argue here. Yeah, well, I just threw an out-of-context little quote at you, just out of interest. So it's pretty, pretty hard to, to answer. I, th- I actually think what he's doing really is just, it's just a, it's a conservative bit of rhetoric to is appeal to, to his... Uh, what I'm saying is, is he trying to own free speech as a conservative principle? Yes, he's trying to say... And, and that is a sort of argument, actually, you know, could even be leveled at you, perhaps, that in a way, the conservation of liberalism or of free speech is a kind of conservative small-c idea because... Mm. You know, you're not going with the next pro- progressive thing, which you know woke would claim it is. You're going, no, no, we had it right with this thing. That is, in a sense, conservative. So I think he's trying to say, okay. look, we have certain moral values. We, we're not just, it's not a free-for-all. It never was. So we need to actually defend I'm, the... God. No, I'm just going to try and find the exact text of the First Amendment because I'm, I'm interested in refreshing myself on this. Uh, Con- Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Okay. Uh, so that seems like um, that seems like it is codifying a, a shared value that has developed through some kind of tradition since the Enlightenment. 
I think that would be fair to say. I think it is it is something that builds on the work of of Locke and then Mill, and then uh, it, 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 by the by the point by the point at which uh, that document is produced, there is a sense of this is this is our shared value. Whether that's a specifically conservative value, um, I'm I'm not so sure because it is advantageous for any party, isn't it? The idea that 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 you can exist in a society within which you are completely free to express yourself and your ideas, even when, even when, and especially when those ideas are in conflict. This is why I think where a lot of us have gone wrong is is by framing the free speech debate as a left versus right debate, because my belief, and it could be naive, is that it ought to be a nonpartisan uh, issue because it benefits all of us. Um, and even hearing views that are oppositional to our own worldview is a benefit to us as much as, as it is to them, I think. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I threw you off a bit by, normally you get someone and they've got a new book out, you ask them about their book, I ask you about yeah, someone no, no, else's book. Which is... I, haven't, I haven't read his book, so, you know. Yeah, yeah. I know, it's a slight curveball for you. Well, um, no, it's just, it's think... interesting that you mentioned that because the First Amendment is a is a negative liberty, so it's freedom from the government to encroach on your on your values that is that changes doesn't it in i mean it is worth talking about this because that changes that means the first amendment is sort of dated by the time we get to today because you, you say there was that thing about that basically they're talking about incitement they're, they're talking about limits to free speech incitement being the most obvious one and in america they've got that thing called the brandenburg test where um do you know about this the brandenburg test so that's the legal test of whether words or someone who has uttered words can be considered responsible for actions that subsequently take place. And it's to do, it's extremely high threshold. It's to do with, um, so for instance, the Trump uh, January 6th example, by no means meets the Brandenburg test. It's very, very far short of that. I know there were some legal scholars who claimed that it did, but they are, I think, coming from a very partisan perspective on that, wishful thinking kind of thing. Um, so I suppose... Incitement is a good example of where we, we all agree that there have to be some kind of limitations on what we call free speech. In the digital age as well, we have the big tech issue, which, of course, the founding fathers never anticipated. So they're talking about you've got freedom from government interference. But what about this big sprawling, the, the, these big sort of uh, plutocrats who own the public square? They never thought of that. Uh, so we do have to kind of update these ideas about, about what free speech means, first and foremost, but also how we, how we uphold it and how we defend it. And I, I do think one of the common misunderstandings of free speech advocates is that what they are doing is being hypocritical. If they say, for instance, uh, it's, it's uh, uh, let's say, perjury. Perjury, you should not be allowed to perjure someone. So they would say that's a, you're not really for free speech. Libel is another example. Um, blackmail, uh, espionage, all of these examples where speech is used to commit a crime and so free speech advocates will say, well, that should not be allowed. And then there was an incitement should not be allowed. And then they will say, well, you are now you are now um, effectively undermining your own absolutist argument. But uh, but what free speech advocates are not saying is that in those examples, that is where speech has been used as a mechanism to commit a crime. And what you're punishing there or what you're preventing is not the speech. It is the crime itself. Uh, I think I, I can't remember the exact phrase I use in the book. Um, I can find it. Um, but I say, um, let me find it, because I think this is an important point. I say that yeah. speech, speech, speech is to perjury what fire is to arson. 
Oh yeah, that was a great. Does, quote. It, does this make sense? So, so I think this is a common misunderstanding. They always try and catch you out, don't they? They'll say, "Oh well, you know, <clears throat> could I surround? Could we kettle someone and start screaming in their face?" And, but no, because harassment is already illegal. And by preventing right. that, you're not by preventing that you're not actually punishing the speech or saying that the speech should be curbed. You can use your speech however you like. But it, then you go back to that, the, the liberal point, which is that as soon as your individual rights, you can exercise your individual rights as much as you like, up until the point that it encroaches on the rights of someone else. It, it is entirely consistent, I think. Yeah, I remember that arson quote as being a standout from the book. And, and just on Brandenburg, yeah, it comes from Brandenburg versus Ohio, 1969. The court held that the government cannot punish inflammatory speech unless that speech is directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action mm. and is likely to incite or produce such action. That so, imminent yeah. thing is the really key point. Is that, you know, right. so for instance, if I suppose that the, it would almost have to be like a group of a, a, a guy, a demagogue or something, standing there with all of his followers and him pointing at someone and saying, mm. you must kill, kill that person now and, yeah. and, um, and having whipped them up into a frenzy. You know, like with the... With the Trump situation, no one denies that he was raising the temperature, right? But that does not make him responsible for the people who then crash into the Capitol, you know? Yeah, and he has all his tweets saying, go home with peace and all this. Very inconvenient for them. He got them out in the town hall debate just the other night. He goes, actually, I've got them right here. And he reads them out. And it's yeah, and I don't, I don't understand why his political opponents would want to pretend otherwise, because what they're effectively doing is mitigating the responsibility of those who committed the actual crime. Right. Or alleged crime, yeah, in many cases. But yeah, yeah I mean... Trespassing is a crime, I think we can all agree. Oh, I just meant, we've seen the videos now, and they're not, not quite, in all cases, what we were presented with, but, you know, we've it's seen just, more videos. That's true. But, um, but um, okay, very interesting. Well, although you are, you, you do sort of try and put pin wokeness on... Um, you, you, you're very keen to defend liberalism, obviously, and you try and pin it on the old right at some point in the book. You say, in fact, there's a convincing case to be made that the woke are more closely akin to the right than to the left given that their causes tend to resonate predominantly with the middle classes. I wasn't totally convinced by that. No, one, I doubt you would be. That's been the, the thing that's annoyed most people. Uh, how does the sentence <laughs> start again, Nick? Because I haven't got it to hand. Well, it, I, maybe I've clipped it from a... Because I don't know where that starts. It says, in Which, fact, there was a convincing case. That's where I got it from. That was just on an extract. I'm in it. So I, I don't know exactly. Is that in, that's in the New Puritans, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so the thing about what I was actually doing there, uh, or what I was attempting to do, and I may have failed, is to make the point uh, that... The traditional notion of what it means to be on the left is to be uh, concerned with redressing economic inequality, social mobility, looking out for working class people, uh, etc. Um, and what you find is that the woke movement, so many people in the woke movement self-identify as left. They say that they are they are left. Um, and what I actually say, and I've got the quote here now, is there is a convincing case to be made that the woke are more closely akin to the right and the left. Now, that, I think, is a key point. I'm actually, you might say I'm trying to have my cake and eat it there, but I am not actually uh, making the case exactly. What I'm doing is I'm acknowledging that there is something inconsistent about the, the, the most vocal cheerleaders of this woke ideology being upper middle class, and they are. And they all have those sort of double-barreled names. And you know when you see those Extinction Rebellion people arrested, it's almost like it's a, it's a, sab it's a sabotage. They're, they're, they're like, they're so plummy-voiced. <laughs> and they, they have such ridiculous names, like Hyacinth Jacinda Smythe, or, or whatever it might be. Edred, um, the snooker guy, yeah. Yeah, what was his name? Edred something. Was he, it? He was, he, yeah, Edred. Yeah, yeah. They, and they're even more ridiculous than that. I mean, that was a great one. But I don't know if that's necessarily posh or just like ancient, like a druid no, think, or something. I think it's posh. What were the names of the Colston Four? Do you remember them? Do you remember the ones no, who... The, 
the ones who went to to court about the um. Wasn't the, the one uh, called it? One the art people called Ponsonby or something. It, that's like. what it, it's something like Ponsonby. I wish I could find it. Um, it's it's. it's oh, here we go. So My, Milo Ponsford. <laughs> I'm not joking. And one of the other ones is called Sage Willoughby. Now this look, this isn't. I know. You're like, is that a thing or is right. that a name? This is. Do, do I plant it? Do I do I put it on my on my omelet? <laughs> so that that's like one of us had dressed up and pretended to be a woke activist. That's what you'd call yourself, right? You'd call yourself something like that. And, and yeah, be, yeah, just and, infiltrating it. Yeah, and because everyone knows it as well. Everyone knows that this movement is predominantly uh, motored by upper middle class people and there, there's a good reason for that is because if you never had to struggle financially or economically you can look for these other grievances you can imagine these grievances in existence particularly in a world where victimhood has so much currency what do you do when you come from such incredible privilege but you you want to be a victim well you have to invent that so th- i think that's what's ha- i think that's what's happened there and the only the, what the reason i say it's more closely akin to the right as well is because so many of the the, the woke movement are antagonists not just uh, a, a disdain, not just um, not looking out for economic inequality, not trying to resolve that, but actively attacking working class people, actively saying that working class people have white privilege, for example, or saying that, you know, or demonising them for driving white vans or for voting Brexit or just saying that they are a problem, saying that they're all basically racists in waiting and they just need one TV programme or one film. They're just one movie away from committing a pogrom because they'll hear a trigger word and they go out like robots and like drones, just do what do the bidding of the work. This kind of patronising view. In other words, any a movement that clearly prioritises the concerns of upper middle class people I think there is a convincing argument to say that that is closer akin to the right because the right traditionally have often been about preserving economic privilege of those who are already in power, right? So that, that I, that's, I think, is a fair point. And, you know, it's like well, it's what George Orwell says about it's not that the uh, these socialists, um, what does he say? It's not that they love the, the, the poor, it's that they hate the rich. And there's no, I see mm. no example of, 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 uh, of any kind of empathy or... Or, or compassion for those who are fi- struggling financially, precisely because so many of the people in the movement have never been in that position. They don't know what it means. Yeah, but you just you run into this Matthew Goodwin debate that's, that's kind of been heated lately, where mm. he's talking about the new woke elite, and it's this kind of loose elite, soft cultural power, and they're basically on the left. Goodwin probably conservative. He tries to be quite neutral, but so the que- the only thing is, I would question is why is that right? They're the Ivy League, yeah. yes. They're elite, but it doesn't really make them right wing. It certainly doesn't make them conservative, small C. All it makes them is, well, the, the new woke elite, really. And I could claim it's on the left. You could claim it's on the right. It's not helpful, but that's why I didn't say definitively. I, I very pointedly say there is a case for this because some of the st- often what I'm doing in the book is presenting the arguments that are out there as yeah, well. Yeah, that was more of a drive by shooting that one. You had a quick little pop and you, you sort of moved on. Oh, it's not about me. No, because <laughs> I, I, I'm not about sides and I don't even know where I how I would be described anymore uh, in terms of left, right. I think these designations are un- unhelpful now. I think the culture yeah. wars have, have killed them. Um, yeah. But I think we live in a country where the left has originated from work- the working class. It's it, The party is called Labour. That's why, you know, this it's for the working people. That's why it's come from. So I just think it's inconsistent to then attack working class people, a- actively attack them and claim to be bastions of the left. I think there is an inconsistency there that is worth it. Well, we agree there. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And it'd be nice if Labour went back to being Labour. And, and, and not... Nick, I should say, I don't think being right wing is bad or evil or wrong. And I don't think I say that in the book either. 
So I think I think what's happened is I've touched a nerve here, and people have they see that sort of sentence and they assume I'm I'm going on the attack, and I'm I'm really not. Well, I had no idea that sense of touch and nerve. It just stuck out to me as one thing to, to bring up. But it's interesting that yeah. a few people have noted it. But, you know, I don't, I don't know where I am either, Andrew. I mean, believe it or not, you know, I was never on a conservative side. I've never voted Tory. I just, I'm like you, really. I've ended up in this weird culture war. But, but you might be a bit more uh, wedded to liberalism than me. And that might be one difference. But another thing you might be a touch more wedded to is, is PC because, um, wedded to is too strong, but fond of. Because it, perhaps, but because you say here, I mean, you seem to think the impulse behind political correctness is fundamentally sound, but it's just sort of gone awry. You say the age of political correctness is over and we are left with its ugly offspring. But to me, PC, wasn't it always authoritarian? Yeah, and I, I think that's an argument that I, you know, I could be very wrong about that. I, what I'm saying is, uh, broadly speaking, on a societal level, we ended up in a better position post-PC than we were before PC. Insofar as... I remember being at school and racist terms and, and anti-gay jibes were absolutely so normal and common that they would barely register a response. And uh, a consequence of that is that obviously, um, well, to take the issue of sexuality, it was not possible for uh, someone to be out in a sixth form college when I was at that age. It was not conceivable i mean i'm not just talking about my sixth form college which is a very small one but the the one uh, at the neighboring town or whatever but which was up to i think they were like 1000 over a thousand because it was a sixth form college rather than a school with a sixth form college and there were no gay people there either now that's statistically impossible so when you when you sort of start saying in society when you talk in other words when you try to develop the social contract to a point at which we don't demonize individuals for their immutable characteristics that is a positive thing uh where pc went awry there were always mo moments of overreach you know and there were people like being called up for a joke or fired for saying that like like we do have today and that was always wrong and i'm never supportive of, of that uh there were always zealots who were going to be attracted to it but what i'm saying is compare what happened with pc of the 80s late 80s early 90s compared to the woke movement there was no equivalent to cancel culture. There was It was not the same thing. It was like you take all of the very rare and occasional excesses of the PC period of the late 80s, uh, you know, when some HR person got, got a bit overzealous. Normally it got resolved, you know, but you take that and you distill that and then you make that the whole movement. That's what woke is, right? So it's all the, ba all the, the bad things about PC amplified. And so I think that's an important distinction to make because no no one part of liberalism is is say, is having conversations and 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 you know uh raising objections when people behave badly that's part of it as well it's like it's my right to say I don't think you should be using using those kind of racial slurs it's my right to 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 not be in in groups of friends or circles of friends of people who use such language and that's always been something I would remove myself from or even it's my right to raise an objection or to protest, whatever. This is all part of it. And when a society comes together, and to go back to the point you make about Carl Benjamin's idea, when you, when, it, when, you, when you go back to a society that is kind of working out what its values are, but doing so in such a way that they reach a, a, a conclusion out of consensus rather than out of authority pressure. And that's, I think, the distinction. I think we, we emerge with a consensus from PC. 
I think we, we emerge with a greater understanding and an idea of what is ideal. That has never happened with the woke movement and never will because it is a minority of authoritarians imposing rules on everyone else. I think it's a really fundamental distinction. Here's a controversial question based on what you've just said. Would you rather be living in a situation where you can't be, you can't come out, as you said, when you were growing up or in the time of wokeness? It's much worse to be gay today than it was during when I was a kid. Um, because today, if you were like I was a gender non-conforming kid, uh, you are likely to be uh, identified as a as potentially someone with who's who is trapped in the wrong body, uh, diagnosed, put onto puberty blockers, etc. You know, uh, uh, the detransitioners I've spoken to, a number of them, are those who are clearly just effeminate gay men who did not play football, who liked playing with dolls, all the rest of it, who have made this terrible mistake because they were convinced by adults that they were trapped in the wrong body. It's an actual physical danger now. Whereas there was physical danger when I was a kid. People, you know, there were, when, when one kid came out, he didn't come out, he was caught having a sexual thing with another sick former. And they got, one of them got physically attacked and there were actual, so there, there was always that risk. Um, but now you've got state approved uh, mutilation of kids who are probably just gay. Probably, or certainly will end up being gay. So it's much more dangerous to be gay today as a youngster. Yeah, I would say that. Um, and also, how can I put this without sounding like a self-hating homosexual? Um, <laughs> it's 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 not necessarily that terrible to live in a society that disapproves of that disapproves of you. Insofar as it, it never stops people being gay, right? So you can you can make it against the law. You can get, introduce the death penalty. People are still going to be gay because it is something beyond their control, um, and because the sexual impulse is so prominent within humanity it's not something that you're going to be able to stop them acting on either because it's a major part of who we are um and actually there's i think there's a very good reason why so many of the great artistic geniuses of history are gay there's a good reason why there's a massively disproportionate correlation there and i think it's because you have to if you're if you're that sort of person you have to be able to think outside the box you have to be the sort of person who 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 because the, the the notion of genius is someone who who finds things that have no precedent, and I think when you have come from a society which deems you to be an outsider from the outset because of something in your nature, it fosters these really interesting things. I mean, I, I remember speaking to my supervisor at Oxford, and he used to say that he was much more excited. It, it, being gay was much more exciting when you knew you could get arrested for it. And you know, there's now I'm not of course I don't agree that it should be illegal. That's not at all what I'm saying. But nor do I think everyone should be celebrating it and celebrate. You know, you don't need affirmation. I don't need people dressing up in pride flags and saying, yeah, we, we love who and what you are. Like, it's not, it is not, firstly, it's not homophobic to be opposed to gay marriage. It is not a threat to gay people to say that you don't approve of gay people. It's part of living in a free society. Uh, but it is a threat to gay people to have laws that mean that you are a second class citizen. Yeah, so what you're saying is now, of course, the geniuses will be straight white men because we're the ones who are excluded from, from the mainstream of society and well, hated. So we're, we're bound to be the geniuses now. There always have been genius straight white men, but the, prob the problem is that it's harder for them to, uh, uh, I suppose, finesse and develop those incredible skills when they are, by virtue of who they are, the, the norm. It's, you know, it's, I'm, t I'm talking in terms of arts. It's kind of, 
kind of yeah, difficult yeah. to be a great artist if you're just the norm, isn't it? You know. I'm not sure, but I wanted to, I wanted to pick up your other point though. I, I mean, I, I was going to say it, but you actually just said it. I was going to say, like, in a way, this sort of heteronormative culture, if you want to call it that. Like you said, you're even saying in some ways that was better, even though you was you you would have to be clandestine. It's better than wokeness, and and you know because the thing is, well, it kind of you're, Jordan you're, Peterson you're, type you're, argument. Go on. But you're sub- you're just substituting one form of authoritarianism for another, aren't you? If you say you know, if, it, it's just as bad to live in a society where no one can criticize a gay person than living in a society where the state won't allow you to be gay. Those those are just different forms of authoritarianism, I think. I'm not saying where the state won't. I'm saying a more like a kind of... I'm saying more like the time we grew up in, where, like you're saying, it's going to get you in yeah. something. I mean, I got called gay at school, and I'm not even gay. But but <laughs> it's a sort of Peterson sort of argument. It's, it's kind of like society is a rough compromise for everyone. So the idea that... I, I, I'm not gay, but the idea that I fit in in a northern village... You know, is absurd. You know, I was I was spat on. I had my head smashed into the window. All these kind of things. So that's the other important point. That's why identity politics gets it completely wrong, because it's not just about your group identity, whatever that is. There are all sorts of reasons why people can be outsiders, or that people can be underprivileged, and you don't. You know, that's why you know, to divide the world into, into in those really narrow terms of race, gender, and sexuality. It, it it doesn't. It, it's 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 too. To overly simplify, it's almost like a, a Lego version of the Sistine Chapel. Yeah, but I, I was going to go to sort of argue against myself and make a similar point to you that I kind of accept that society, this is my view, that society is better with the nuclear family or you know, people like my brother and his mates. I'm not them any, either, any more than you are because I live alone and I'm not even in a relationship and I'm kind of an outsider weirdo. But I kind of look at them and go, yeah, that's pr- pretty much what we need to be the norm, even though I'm not in it. And you're not in it, I, and I kind of. And I, but I'm surprised you said it. But you're kind of saying the same thing. But what I also want to know as an, an, an addendum to that, aren't you proving that PC failed because you're because you're saying political correctness was better and got us to this place, but didn't it actually get us to this woke place? The, the thing we had before, which is a bit rough for everyone, but is kind of like but better. It wasn't that better than post PC, which which is the woke era now, which you've admitted is is worse. You see what I mean? Yeah, I mean if you're arguing that because uh, the woke movement was spawned from PC, therefore PC was a bad thing, then that's a reasonable argument. But can, but you know, if you apply that to other things, I'm not sure that, you know, there are all sorts of good things that have happened throughout history that have led to bad, that, you know, and and, and you don't therefore say that the original thing was, was a wrong thing. What went, you know, the, the thing, what is at fault there is not the project of PC, but rather those who got it wrong and exploited it and manipulated it and changed it, you know? So I think, We've got to be careful where we lay the blame for that. It is um, similar, though, isn't it? It's the primacy of language over reality. It's a kind of obsession no, I don't think they, with... No, well, that's why I don't think it is. I think PC was never about the primacy of language. I think it was about uh, decorum. Really, it was just about decorum. It was about how how do we as a society want to live? Do we want to live in a society where, uh, how, how you know, we, all, we do have it anyway. We have what we call politeness, uh, I think politeness is a really good thing and it's something we teach kids and I think we should. And I think that's that's what it was really about. But you made another point about what was it about how whether things were better before or better in the rough heteronormative culture that well, was so it excluding could be, people. It could be the case that society is better if it encourages the nuclear family as an ideal. It could well be the case that that is true. Um but my point was always, and I'm not going to argue that because I don't, I don't know, but it might be the case that that is true. But my point was simply that 
within that society, if that society at the same time as promoting the nuclear family as an ideal says that it is illegal to deviate from that ideal, that I don't think is good. No, no, we're not talking about going back to the time of Turing and the horrible treatment of gay and chemical castration because you were gay. I mean, that can then you just know that's the same as chemical castration in the trans you know. People, so we just stop chemically castrating people, you know, with the possible exception of, of child sex. Can we not all agree on that? Well, apparently yeah. a lot of prominent leftists can't. They think that's great. It's madness. I know. Yeah. Um, but th- I just don't agree with your characterization of PC. I think that's the thing Stuart Lee says in his act. He says, oh, it's just being fair to people. It's like, no, nah, it's not. I agree more with the Carlin quote. I assume it's a genuine quote. I've heard it a lot. Political correctness is fascism pretending to be manners. I'm more on that. Yeah, but page. I think Car- what Carlin's doing there is talking about those those who went to excesses that's what i think i you know okay. i think and i agree with so in that sense i agree with them both okay um all right very interesting um i've got so many things i want to ask you um what about the oh, i don't know if, I should, if this is a waste of that i want to ask about the quickly about social justice then on a similar theme because i've got it here page 25 i mean is social justice in a similar vein you sort of talk about it as if it was a, a good thing that's gone awry Um, You say the term social justice, Hayek maintains, is a prime example of how fine sentiments risk becoming the instruments for the destruction of all values of a free civilization. Mm. So that's kind of the idea. Okay, good idea gone awry. Whereas someone like Scruton, who I also happen to have here, how to be a conservative. I've got my books here today. He sort of argues more that it's it's it, it, the so- social justice is kind of based on the politics of resentment or re- resentment. Quoting Nietzsche, which is. He's saying that it's the, the fallacy of the zero-sum game. You win, therefore I lose. And yeah, he's yeah. saying that it's kind of based in resentment. So it's, it's at core a kind of bad idea. Any comment on, on that? Well, again, I think they're probably both right. I think in a lot of cases, people do play a zero-sum game and they do are attracted to what we call the critical social justice movement out of resentment or, out of, or it could be a power play. You know, I think if you create a, a movement in which it is considered a virtue to bully and attack people and dehumanise them, then that is going to attract bullies. Bullies are going to be attracted to that in much the same way that during the Troubles in Northern Ireland, you would have in people who in any other society would become serial killers uh, joining the UDA or something. You know, people like that Murphy from the Shankill Butchers who has, has Here Lies a Soldier written on his uh, tombstone. He was a serial killer, torturer and serial killer. Uh, in any other society, he wouldn't be lauded after death and he wouldn't have been able to get away with what he got away with for so long. But he was living in a society where suddenly to be a sadistic psychopath um, could be um, seen to be something virtuous and positive. So, and I know that's an extreme comparison, but I think I'm trying to just illuminate what I mean by this. And when I see the behaviour of social justice activists online and how vicious and how they remind me of the school bullies and... Uh, and how much they attack people. I can also see that a, a significant proportion of those people are doing it because they genuinely believe that the people they are attacking are less than human, are, are fascists, are evil, or all the rest of it, and that what they are doing is a moral good uh, by, by going on the attack. But you can also see, and it's often quite evident, I think, you can see the bullies who are wearing the sacred cloak. You can see the people who are in disguise. You can see the ones who are just, they have a lust for hurting others. And this movement attracts I'd say an awful lot of those people. Um, and I think the idea of justice, you don't need social before, I think you don't need to qualify. I think the idea of justice is a positive thing and one that uh, that is tied into my beliefs and the beliefs of liberalism more generally. Um, but I think when you add that qualifier 
social justice for some reason <laughs> you get this kind of awful shark-like behavior you know i think i think yeah. it's well i know the people you mean because they tweet me every day yeah yeah but you must admit there's a you know we probably get a skewed view don't we because we're on twitter and we see the the you know most people aren't going to comment on anything you know and the ones that do and if they want if they want to be critical or they're probably likely to be not very pleasant people uh, but the truth is, and I, I always do believe this, I have a faith in humanity. I think that the boring truth is most people are just pretty nice, boringly nice. Most people just want everyone else to have a fair shot of it. And, and, and most people do not instinctively want to go out of their way to hurt people. Some some woman, old woman falls over in the street. 90, I think 99% of people will try go and help that person. And they will feel a genuine sense of concern about that person. And I think that 1%, though, that will be laughing at it, and would want to kick kick in the boot. Those are also the types of people who are attra- who are attracted to the social justice movement because they can stick the boot in and be applauded for it. I agree with you about people, or, or at least I did till I started working on headliners. Now I'm not sure, but the um, but we we have to be careful, Nick, because we get a really skewed idea of, the, of humanity through Twitter. Oh yeah, 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 you know, absolutely. Not... No, no, I meant I meant the comedians I have to work with, <laughs> but um, <laughs> just a little oh, well, joke. But um. It's uh, yeah, most people are, are, are decent. I believe as well. That's kind of why I have all my beliefs. I'm not an elitist, but um, the big question I always ask everyone, and it's particularly relevant with you, I think, is how we win the culture war and how it ends. And you, you've got some thoughts on this in the, in the epilogue of, of your book, The New Puritans. Some of it's stuff we've already covered, where you say, which is well, we've semi covered it, which is while liberals call for progress, the New Puritans call for change. The distinction is worth noting. I am optimistic that social liberalism will win out. The alternative is too grim to contemplate. And this touches some things we've kind of covered a little bit, which is you think it's, see, I would, I think perhaps it's just an extension of the same thing. Maybe we're living in a kind of Rousseauian liberal world now, and that's what wokeness is, whereas you would say it's not, it's a, it's a break from it. But we've all sort of gone over that. But, but, it, it, but it also touches on the how does, how does it end, how do we win question. And you have a very interesting part here where, you say it is in the lacunae of doubt that reason can find a way to penetrate. I really like that phrase. Even when widespread institutional capture has generated the illusion of a society that has lost its mind. So the lacunae, even though I might pronounce it wrong, of doubt. So there's a small gap here of doubt that we can, where we can win. I mean, is that how, is that how we win? I, I think I, I believe that we, we just have to because the alternative is a return to authoritarianism and and we don't want that you know we don't want to unpick all of the advances that we made since the civil rights movement of the 60s we want to build on those um and i don't you know i'm not naive enough to believe in this teleological view of 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 human humankind that we are just incrementally incrementally moving towards this utopia which is what they they do believe and that's why i'm trying to say in the book you know they are mistaking change for progress you know they they think that what they are doing is moving in a progressive way um the comparison I give is is the the revolution in Iran. You know, it's absolutely the case that the uh, the the imams would have believed that this is a progressive move to make sure that women are wrapped up and kept subordinate. But the women almost certainly didn't feel that way. Um, but not only that, but they would have believed that they not not only that this was a progressive move, this was morally a morally good thing. And I think we are experiencing something very similar. A group of high priests in the book I call them the the clergy for a digital age. They are or for a godless age, they are. Um, the high priests of this movement believe that what they are doing is virtuous and right and that they are achieving progress. And to everyone else looking on, they just think, you are regressing. You are taking us back. 
you're changing society, but you're not making it better. Um, so I think that is a distinction that we absolutely have to have to understand, particularly when we get into this argument about, oh, it's just old people who can't stand the young or, or things changing. I'm all for change. And actually, as I've as the statistics show, uh, this movement is a minority movement in every generation, including the most young. So it's simply a mischaracterization to say this is about old versus young. Um, what it is is a is a is a is a conflict between authoritarianism and liberty and liberty. Um, well, on this, and we'll get on to authoritarianism because I have a big question about that. But how when I, on the question of how it ends? Yeah. Okay. You, you go. Are you going to say something? Well, I mean, I, I I used the analogy of the Salem witch trials to try and yeah. make a point of how it ends because because. To look at what happened in Salem is to kind of understand where we are now. You kind of get a kind of microcosm. And I won't go into the details. I'm sure people know the basics that, you know, this uh, small village in, in Massachusetts for about a period of 14 months maximum went a bit crazy. All the girls in the village started screaming and pointing and saying that various people were witches. 20 people were executed. A further five died in prison. And... Um, and the, the the reason why I think it's similar to what we're experiencing is that that was a community of decent, God-fearing folk who did not go around hunting witches. They didn't go around pointing at people and screaming witch. This wasn't what they did. It was a hysteria. It was short-lived. It was flash in the pan. The, and it only happened because the magistrates and the ministers and those in power allowed it to happen. We have the same thing now. We have screaming anime avatars online demanding that we we say there are 100 genders and demanding that people are arrested for using the wrong language and all the rest of it but they're a minority as i say in every generation but the reason they have so much disproportionate power is because people in power people in government people in the police academics say yes we will do your bidding we will do exactly what you say they are the magistrates of salem they are the ministers of salem who by the way i think for the most part knew it wasn't real but went along with it because they didn't want to be uh, the next to be accused and so the diff so so i don't blame the girls of salem for those executions i blame those in authority who allowed it to go ahead because it wouldn't matter if today we had these activists screaming at us online and demanding all these ridiculous demands about castrating kids and and, and all the rest of it and we just said okay you get you get to scream you're allowed to scream away and point and shout witch or turf or whatever or fascist or whatever the modern version of witch is you can do that, but we'll just ignore you and get on with society as it is. That is the way out. And then if you look at what happened at the end of... The reason why Salem collapsed, the reason why... This is the other key point I make is in the book, is that all of those convictions were secured on what was known as spectral evidence. The notion of spectral evidence was just what we call lived experience. The idea that it's my truth. I see the witches, therefore the witch is there. That is all the evidence you need. I know you're a fascist, therefore you're a fascist. The accusation is is, is taken for proof. So we have that very similar situation now. And then at, towards the end of that year at Salem, the deputy governor decided to write to all the clergy, the top clergymen in the country and said, can we admit spectral evidence in court? And they all said, no, that's ridiculous. And it, they all collapsed overnight. Every single case collapsed overnight. And it was just because someone on authority said no, right? There's a moment in the in the book I talk about the Ipswich, I think I say we're at our Ipswich Bridge moment because there was a time where the girls were walking across Ipswich Bridge when they were, they were going on a little tour of the local towns screaming witch at everyone. And they, they passed an elderly individual and they screamed witch, started falling about in convulsions, but everyone just start, ignored them and walked on and nothing happened. And I say we are, and 
And they do say that after that moment on Ipswich Bridge, they didn't cry witch on anyone anymore. And I think we're at that Ipswich Bridge moment where we could all just stop, you know, truckling to their bidding. We could just stop. When they scream and shout and cry witch, we just walk on. And that's how it goes. That's how it goes away. That is not to say, don't misunderstand me here. I'm not saying we can just ignore what's going on. We can ignore the screaming activists. We have to tackle the impact that the activists have made in society through the elites that implement their demands. That's what I'm trying to say. And I think that's the way out. I think that's the way out. That's why when you see um, uh, groups like Sex Matters raising a petition to have the discussion in government, uh, when you have um, people going through the, the courts to ensure that we have our rights, you know, we have to weed this out from authority, from, from those in positions of power. That should be, that's how we tackle this, not by listening to the screamers. Does that sort of make sense? It absolutely makes sense, I mean, especially because I've read the book. And I actually loved that moment on the Ipswich Bridge so much that I was not even going to mention it because I, I didn't want it to be a spoiler. But since you mentioned it, it's fine. But I was going to say that that is because it's brilliant the way you, you, you bookend the, the, the book with the Salem Witch Trials and that moment, which is basically an Emperor's New Clothes moment, is, is really yeah. what it is. It's like we're, we're not going for this nonsense anymore. And then it evaporates. And I love that so much, that bit. And, um, and everyone should still read the book, by the way. Uh, there's a lot more to it than that. I there's a lot more to it than that, but it's just, and, and and you won't get the feeling of it unless you read the whole thing. But it, it's a beautiful moment. But but and it's very clever the way you did it. But the, one question there though, Andrew, that I had is, it's lasted a lot longer than the Salem witch trials. <laughs> this whole thing yeah. has not been fourteen months. We've been like fourteen years or something. Yeah, yeah, so I know. But but is it, it does, the same? Can I know. But in the gra- but in the grand scheme of things, it's still quite a relatively short time. I mean, you know, think of the things that are happening now you and I would not have believed could be happening 10 years ago. We wouldn't have believed it. We wouldn't have said it was possible that the police were arresting people for non-crime. We would, no one would have said that that was possible. No one would have said it was possible that there were clinics funded by the NHS which were sterilising kids who were probably gay or autistic. We, like, the, the, it, it isn't something that people, or that we were segregating kids by skin colour for after-school activities, which is what happened at a school in London a couple of years ago. We, we wouldn't have believed it, and not even the activists of that species would have believed it, right? They wouldn't, they would, it, it's, it's, it has, on, I think, uh, a historical scale, happened very, very quickly. But like with Salem, like with any hysteria, and I do think it is a hysteria, it can die out just as quickly as well. That's my, that's my takeaway from the Salem witch trials. That's what I believe. Or that's, maybe it's wishful thinking, Nick. That's well, I hope not. I mean, I've certainly said similar things. I wrote an article about Nicola Sturgeon saying, is this her Berlin Wall moment? And then suddenly she was gone about the Isla yeah. Bryson case. Yeah. Of course, now we see it was also the financial dealings, perhaps. But we see these things can happen. I've been a little bit encouraged by the complaints about the woman saying that the balcony was terribly white at the coronation. You know, a little bit of pushback because that kind of thing has just been accepted for so long. And now everyone's going, hang on, that, yeah. that's racist. We don't actually like that. And what I've, what's really occurred to me recently, because I've done a couple of gigs recently where, I, and I don't gig much anymore, but the ones I've done where, I'm, where I've ended up on the bill with, with someone I used to gig with years ago, but I haven't seen for years, who now perceives me to be a, an evil monster, uh, which is most of the, the, the comedians I used to gig with. And, and, you know, they have to talk to you out of politeness and you, get, you, get, you, you realise I haven't, I'm the one that hasn't changed. Like, I'm the one that has been consistent in my, in my views, broadly left-leaning liberal values, Nothing has changed there, but they have bought into a hysteria and they can't see it because I'm the minority, I suppose. They can't see yeah. that they're the ones that have bought into this authoritarian worldview and, and 
what they see is they their 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 picture of it is I've sort of curdled into this evil right wing figure, and actually the reverse is true. They are the ones that have undertaken a metamorphosis. And I was going to ask you, what do you think it is about not to blow my own trumpet, but people like you and me, and we're we're the same in this. I'm not wouldn't de- want to tie with my brush, but at least on this point, is that we haven't gone along with it. What 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 makes certain people just not go along with it? I I couldn't profess to know. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I can only speak for myself insofar as I've, I've always been resistant to being told what to think. I always like to think for myself. It might just be as simple as the truth that most people fi- find free thinking to be quite hard. Like it is hard. It's much more comfortable to go along with what everyone else is doing. Uh, we all did it at school, didn't we? Um, but, but for some reason, there were always those at school that didn't do that and push back a little bit. And, 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 and I think, and you know, I, but I don't know why. And, and some of the most intelligent people I was friends with went along with it. I think I, I don't think it's to do with intelligence. And I don't think we should flatter ourselves that it's to do with intelligence. Because no, I think, well, I proved that. Well, <laughs> even the most intelligent people can get caught up in hysteria, as happened in Salem, you know. So yeah. none of us are, 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 are not susceptible to that. No, it's definitely not intelligent. You get these sort of, yeah, middle class, smart sophists backing all this stuff. It's not intelligent. It, it just seems to be some other factors. It's straight, I've always had it as well. I mean, if a crowd's doing something, I can't, sort of can't do it. I have to do the opposite. And yeah. who knows why I'm like that? Other people are a lot happier. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's just bloody mindedness. I don't know. Um, I've, I don't. And it's the same reason I don't like crowds. I don't like it's the same reason I don't go on protests, even if I really deeply care about the, the, the cause, because I don't like being in a body of people who all think the same way. There's something about it that actually genuinely upsets me. <laughs> when they start um, chanting. Yeah, not I can't. war or whatever it is. It I you can't feel do it. Even yeah. if I, even if I care passionately, I can't do it. And I always have to. When people ask me to come to protests, I have to explain why I can't do this. <laughs> you know, maybe just find it a bit tasteless and gauche, Andrew. <laughs> no, maybe, I know what you mean. Yeah. It's a weird that tribal feeling, and you're just like, this is a bit weird. This I don't like me. it. Yeah, I don't like tribalism. That's basically it in a nutshell. I don't. But I, I totally don't agree. Then the one thing I forgot to pick up on is that they didn't really believe it. When reading your book, I was like. These people didn't believe this. You know, the, the, the girls rolled their eyes at the same time as the witch did it. So it's like, oh, so she's controlling them. And as you said, why would she in her own trial demonstrate her witchy power? She would do the opposite. Right. And, and I thought, there's no way these people believe it. They were just enjoying being nasty and brutal to people and just getting going getting carried away with it like people do in or a more crowd. Li- or more likely, they were scared to be accused next. Right. You know? Right. That's the other thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They didn't believe it. A lot of these people don't believe it. Though, like you said, the, the people that do believe it are even scarier. Well, it's it's interesting you mentioned that because I, I do want to say, recently I did a, 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 it was a radio show, but someone came up to me and, and, and wanted to talk about, and then sent me a private message saying, you know, it's such a relief to be able to talk to someone who doesn't just go along with the group thing. I, you know, I'm in this comedy industry where everyone just has to say the same thing. And there are all, I get messages like that re- reasonably frequently. There are all sorts of people who are just parroting the accepted shibboleths because they, they're in an industry where if you don't do that, you're not going to get the next job. And that I, I find I have sympathy for that. But I think there's more people who are sceptical about this than than aren't. You know, I think, I think, I, you know, the vast majority of the, the comedy industry is very captured by this. But I stand, I think the majority of comedians know that it's all bollocks. But they also know that there's a thing they have to do to, to get on. Yeah, they're mainly cowards and, and good luck to them. But um, um, and maybe it's easy for me to say that. I don't know. Maybe it's not because I, I gave up a lot because of my views. But maybe I didn't. Maybe I would never have made it. And it just suits me to be on GB. Who knows? But um, 
What about this though, Andrew? A bit more challenging. We've, we've sort of done the book there. I think we've, we've done like an hour on the book. So just a slight, quick, I know you, you probably don't want to spend all afternoon on this, but quick um, extra question. This yeah. is a bit of a tougher question because you mentioned authoritarianism. Mm. And one criticism you get a little bit, I've seen it far more of Douglas Murray and people like that, but I've seen it of you a little bit, is that, okay, you're brilliant on the culture war, wokeness, etc. But you weren't so vocal, seemingly, about, let's say, COVID, lockdowns, perhaps the vaccine debate. Isn't that an instance of authoritarianism? The, the big one, in a way. And, of course, yeah. Jordan Peterson famously kind of missed it. But he said, well, he was ill and, you know, sorry. Any thoughts on that? Well, I don't, I don't think it's true insofar as I was... I think what I would say is I was reluctant to offer an opinion about something I had no understanding of. I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't understand viruses. I don't even know the basics I would say I really don't um I didn't pay attention in science class what I was speaking out about early on was the encroachments on civil liberties and I did that very very consistently I think I was one of the the the, the in the early days I, I was arguing debating on radio 4 uh, against uh, vaccine passports and I was and I was doing it from the basis of my concerns about liberty I was on TV all the time saying that we shouldn't uh, criticizing the police for their overreach uh, and saying that my big fears about all of this and that the lockdown was the attacks on civil liberties and the, the attacks on our freedoms. And I was saying that consistently. What I was not saying is that I wasn't sure about the first lockdown. Well, I, I didn't know whether that was what was needed in terms of um, protecting us from a virus that I did not understand. And I think I would be a fraud if I had come out and said, we can just ignore the virus, the lockdown is definitely a bad thing because, you know, because I didn't know. I didn't know enough about it. Um, but what I did know was that there was there were there were attacks on civil liberties that really did trouble me. Um, and I was saying that from pretty much point one, from pretty much day one. So I think there's just a kind of amnesia about that or a sort of I think people want to believe I didn't say anything. But luckily, it's all online and you can you can go and find it. Well, we definitely do get that. I mean, Toby Young all the time gets, oh, Mr. Free Speech, you haven't addressed this thing, though, have you? And he has, you know what I mean? Like that day. But yeah, so that does yeah. happen. But um, what you're sort of saying, though, is that it was really, it was a medical phenomenon, whereas it quickly became a, a political phenomenon. And you talk about communal hysteria in your book, of course, meaning the, the Salem, etc. This, to me, seemed like an instance of communal hysteria. And so you didn't well, have to be... Except, a- that there, except that there are historical precedents where a lockdown or a quarantine was needed and was actually the, the right thing to do. You know, if you take the uh, uh, the Black Death, uh, for example, when communities managed to seal themselves off, they tended to survive. And, and so it isn't, you know, coming from a position of ignorance, which is where we all were, about something that was new, uh, it would have been most unwise, I think, for me to pontificate one, one way or another without having a sense of it. By the time, as you say, by the time we got to the second lockdown and it was clear, clearly political, this was a political decision. Um, I mean, I, I should say, by the way, that I was saying very early on from the very start, why aren't we having a discussion about simply shielding the vulnerable and letting the whole... I said, I wasn't saying I'm supporting that, but I, what I was saying was, why is that not even on the table? Why are we not having that conversation? So I was always interested in in being able to have open discussions. That is what I think hasn't happened. We haven't been able to have open discussions the people who uh, penned the Barrington declaration were demonized even though they were experts in their field I remember saying very early on in the lockdown why aren't we listening to those people why aren't we why are they being demonized why are YouTube videos disappearing you know this is something that I repeatedly talked about and I think um and I think you're right by the time we got to the second lockdown I was against that 
and I was openly against that. So um, I'm not going to do I'm not going to do this thing of why weren't you out screaming about the, the the first lockdown early on because that I think would be to ask me to take a a position of zealotry which I wouldn't have done. I agree. There's a purity police now, and I was going to ask a question about that in a minute. There's a you know why weren't you perfect from the minute one? And I, I don't like all that. I, I can't stand this sort of woke anti-woke version of woke which i call the purity police very annoying but i have to say i was against it from the start and talking about it on talk radio and the reason i was against it from the start is i don't believe in lockdowns in principle i believe that if there was a black death people would naturally shield themselves out, out of fear anyway and they would and, and the, the, the state you're supposed to be liberal but i just think the state never has that right they abandoned what the plan they had they went with this lockdown thing we all accepted it as an idea as, it, as if it was normal this prison-based idea or this chinese authoritarian idea so to me i just don't recognize their right to do that to me and take away my job and all this kind of thing i just simply don't recognize it in any circumstance so it's a no-brainer for me yeah but then ah but that said during the black death you would have said yeah people would shield themselves but you wouldn't consider it your right as an infected person to go wandering into a community that has shielded itself. You wouldn't have said that. If I, if, no, if I knew I had it, of course I wouldn't do that. Right. You'd be like, there's a, there's a monastery on Capri where, because uh, I was there recently, and um, uh, during the Black Death, they, they the monks shielded themselves off, and the, the locals were so angry, they threw the dead bodies of the infected over the walls to try and get them infected as well. I think that would be you. At that at that point, no, what, I'm joking. I, I'd be throwing people off the wall. I, I'm, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. But the but no, but the yeah, the point is, you're right. I think we, yeah, but that that was the discussion we weren't having. Is that why why is it not the case? You know that that what we did know early on is that this virus didn't generally affect the young. We 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 did know that very early on. So I never understood why people wanted to vaccinate young people, and I never understood why, like I say. We weren't having a discussion about shielding the vulnerable and letting society get on with it as normal. And I didn't, and I said I didn't understand why that was going on. And part of me assumed there must be some knowledge that I don't get because I don't understand viruses. Uh, I, there must be something I'm missing here. And I think what happened as a result of that is people very understandably, because there were, there were these obvious inconsistencies, you know, it was quite obvious that you don't need to vaccinate a child. And it was quite obvious um, that that the vast majority of people could get on with their lives as normal and make that choice so long as you weren't, you know, shielding people in care homes and stuff, which makes sense, um, rather than herding infected people into care homes, which is what the government did. Um, and I think what that did is that created this gap where people started thinking there was something else going on. And I think that's why you, a lot of people have gone so far down conspiratorial thinking because something is awry and therefore they now will believe anything, including that the moon landings didn't happen, you know? So I think that's what's happened to people. They've gone too far the other way, and, they've, and I've said this in a recent article in Daily Skeptic about the bridging thing. They've, they've not um, applied the same skepticism they applied to the mainstream narrative to their new red pill narrative. And, and, but just quickly on the other thing, yeah, I could, I could see, I, I, ne I never believed it was, okay, it had a medical component, obviously, I'm not saying that, but it wasn't, it was predominantly to me, or very quickly became a political phenomenon. You could tell because I'm a, a extreme hypochondriac who's seeking help for that right now because it's yeah, literally yeah. made my life so miserable. I've been like suicidal about it. So I've got, whereas I had no f fear of COVID. I actually only got ill once in three years. I don't know if it was COVID or not. Never took the safe and effective treatment. And whereas people like my brother, not to throw him under the bus, but he, he was wearing a mask outside in the pub after football, right? And, and then he gets up from the bench 
keeps his mask, puts his mask back on, and he doesn't even go back inside. He's going from the outside area, still in the outside area, leaving the pub. So mm. kind of extreme mask wearing. But he's never been a hypochondriac. But what he is is a remainer who yeah, sees yeah, himself yeah, as part of the sort of a ruling, not ruling elite, but you know what I mean. The yeah, but the, but the mask became a symbol of, of, of a particular, a symbol of virtue. That's, that's what it became. What I resent very much is that the, uh, the, the, the WHO initially said that the masks are, are ineffective anyway. They won't do anything. And then, then they uh, said, actually, you must wear a mask. They're really, really important. And now we learn that they didn't really do anything. And yeah. what, I resent that kind of thing because I resent the nudge unit. I resent the idea that, that, that you have a government or, even, or anyone in authority that thinks the best solution is to lie to the population for their own good. I really, really resent that. Um, and what this whole situation has done is, is heightened my mistrust. But what it hasn't do, done is made me think, well, if they lied about that, they're lying about everything. Because I just think that does not follow. Although lying to the population for their own good is probably a huge amount of what they do. If you think about intelligence and, and wars and all sorts well, of things. that's more to do with withholding certain uh, right, right. things. Because, yeah. you know... You know, we, we, the, yeah, the masking, the suspicion was we don't have enough masks. Let's tell them they don't work. Now we want them to wear them. Let's tell them they do work. Yeah, all that kind of thing. Yeah, of course, that's going to breed mistrust and resentment. Um, yeah. What did you think of the Bridgen, Andrew Bridgen versus Fraser Myers Spike debate? I've just written an article about it. I tried to be incredibly fair because I know Fraser. I've written for Spike. I know Andrew. I've had him on this podcast and I can see things on both sides. I hated the fact that Fraser repeatedly used the phrase anti-vax because people have been tarnished with this and it was a horrible thing where mainstream media figures andrew neil karen brady uh the independent was saying um piers morgan they were saying you shouldn't have health care you shouldn't be able to move around you should have financial penalties and there's a huge resentment to, uh, about being labeled it was a frightening thing to be labeled with so i really resent his use of that but i also i also thought he had some reasonable points about people have become indoctrinated into a a new kind of orthodoxy, the kind of red pill or, or whatever orthodoxy you want to call it. I, I understood that as well. And Bridgen, for his part, I thought was a good debater. I think he shouldn't rely on this idea, who funds you, you're funded by Pfizer. No, just, just engage with what Fraser's saying. And this is what I say in the article. But some people even said, and I defend you in the article, because some people even said, oh, Andrew Doyle's siding with Fraser. But to me, you were clearly, you got them on for debate. You did your best to be neutral. Very hard job to be totally neutral, but you did your best. But any, any comment on that? Well, I thought I was helping by getting a conversation going. I think uh, exactly the the uh, concerns you've raised there are best resolved in face-to-face discussion. So I thought, well, you know, he's written, as Fraser's written this attack on, on uh, Bridgen, a sort of a, a critical uh, article, and Bridgen and his uh, fans have, have reacted very badly and negatively, and there was a lot of noise online, and it was all very ugly, and a lot of name-calling. And I thought, well, I'll just offer the platform for them to sit together and discuss. And I admire them both for doing it because I think, as I said at the start of the interview, I think it's really hard to face your critics. Uh, but I think it's also hard to face the people you've criticised. I think both of those things are really, really difficult. Um, and so for them to get in the room and do it, there was no shouting, you notice. There was no... Uh, people weren't getting angry or anything. The, 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 the issue of anti-vax, for instance, is a good example. Uh, because the the phrase has become tarnished, because the phrase has become uh, associated in some people's minds with a slur, that's something that we could have had a discussion about. But of course, Fraser's perspective on that is, well, a lot of the people he's talking about are opposed to the vaccine and are therefore anti-vax. So um, perhaps it is the case that he isn't uh, sensitive enough to the way in which the, the or the, the connotations of that phrase, uh, even though technically the phrase is accurate right so, so but that's something you can 
thrash out in discussion and debate, but you, you get nowhere as soon as that migrates online and it's just people screaming about it. I mean, also part of the condition of that debate really was that I'd promised I'd be impartial. So uh, I, I was, I thought, impartial. And um, when it appears I'm pushing back, I'm actually asking for clarification. Um, and I think that's fair enough. And I was deliberately not uh, get involved in myself in the debate. So it was quite astonishing to see people resent the fact that the debate took place. I think those people are part of the problem. Uh, and then they start throwing nonsense around about, uh, what is it, about about spikes being funded by Pfizer, which is factually not true. And it's absolutely incredible that, that uh, I mean, I've had to block a number of people who, who followed me for years because they're just screaming at me about this falsehood and they won't listen to reason. And I'm, I, I, life's too short to deal with, with people who haven't grown up. Um, you know, the, the, the very idea that because Pfizer co-sponsored a, a school survey in 2006 with Spiked about why did you get into science, um, the very idea that because they did that, um, almost 20 years later, uh, Fraser Myers, who was 14 at the time of that, that, that collaboration, would be uh, shilling for Big Pharma and just... Uh, writing whatever they decided he should write is so in the realms of absurdity that I can't really respect anyone who takes that view because you have to be willfully ignoring the facts on that. You have to be, you, you, you're at the level of flat eartherism at that point. And I just think there's no point in even discussing with, with people like that. I think he said he was 15 at the time to be absolutely fact-checked. But yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I mean, I, I thought that as well. And they, and some people have still said to me, no, I liked your article, but they actually are funded by Pfizer. Well, I don't think they are, but... Well, they, I, no, know, but they're not. They're factually not. No, exactly. And, and, you, it's and not, That's not a debate. That you. No. That is not a debate to be had. It's like me saying, well, I think you're, I think you're funded uh, by uh, the local garden centre. I've just decided yeah. that you are. You know, you can't know, prove just... a negative. These people keep expecting you to prove a negative. They come at me saying, prove that they're not funded by Pfizer will prove that you're not having sex with goats every weekend go on yeah yeah I know and it's much better to just assume Fraser's in good faith he's a fairly he's opinionated a really person anyway you he's know a really, not only <laughs> no. that, he's a really nice guy really he decent is, yeah. guy he's really pro-liberty even if I disagreed with him on everything I would still think he's a really nice guy he is coming at it from good faith he the things he says he believes sincerely with this this argument which is by the way the key characteristic of the woke is this inability to accept that someone might disagree with you unless they are doing so because they're being paid to do so or because they're evil. Like th it's, it's, it's the ultimate form of narcissism. The idea that anyone who deviates from my worldview can only be doing it if they're being paid to do it because I'm such a godlike figure that I get everything right. And it's the same as, I'm sorry, you know, I had this discussion with Owen Jones on Radio 4 and he couldn't get beyond this idea that whenever I disagreed with him, I must be lying or I must, I must have some other motive. The, the people who are angry at Spiked and taking this view, who keep coming back to this idea that he must be shilling for Big Pharma, they are the woke. They are the woke times 10, you know, what you describe as the purity police. And I think we just have to move, work around these people who are not capable of critical thinking. And that, are, that, that, that I'm afraid, is what I'm seeing a lot of at the moment. Yes, I agree. And we saw that in the Jacob Rees-Mogg debate with that Marina person on GB oh, she News. She just kept yeah. saying, you're lying. And he said, well, well you're assuming I'm lying just because I disagree with you. And it's like, that's the thing. You, they're assuming bad faith. And I, yeah, I said the same thing as Fraser. I've, I've talked about being a conspiracy moderate and taking some red pills and so, you know, 
seeing both sides of it and still and i say in this piece those on the anti-woke side who have overdosed on red pills knocking back a fair few black pills in the process ending up in a position where anything short of the most extreme most paranoid take renders you a totally cuck shill which is what you said and as fraser puts it the what he calls anti-vaxxers which i hate that term like to pose as original daring thinkers they're nothing of the sort they've merely replaced the minus dogmas of the establishment with the minus talking points of a weird online subculture and i tend to agree they've they failed to apply the same healthy skepticism to their newfound beliefs but i also understand it because they've been hit with so much nudge so many lies and so much nonsense i think the covid era has messed with a lot of people in that way and it is understandable how it's happened to them I agree. I, and I, like I said before, I think that's what that explains where this has come from. And it also shows the sort of human susceptibility to these broad narratives and to groupthink. I mean, I think what we're seeing here uh, from a lot of these people is, is an example of groupthink in action, you know, and and the demonization of anyone who deviates. And they need to be really wary about this, I, I think. Um, it, it, we, we, I think we have to get to this point, back to this point of asking for evidence, evidence based analysis you know, to, to be able to discuss things through without taking your most ungenerous interpretation of someone else's position and assuming it must be true. That, that I think, is where we're, we have to somehow get back to. I mean, you know, you saw that, I, I assume, you saw the tweet that Abby Roberts sent, who's a comedian who we both know. Um, and I just thought it was so incredible. Um, this is someone I know who's always been decent to me and I've always been decent to her, going online to, to, to attack and to smear and it was like getting a tweet by one of the woke because she said i've got it here let the record show i love that she's speaking like this old testament prophet it's really funny let the record show that fraser myers claire fox andrew doyle etc etc are denying the reality of a global democide that has been committed in plain sight they are the gatekeepers against truth and justice enough no, we want to have a conversation based on evidence rather than just the pronouncements of an authoritarian, which is what she's doing. She's now in the same bracket as the woke authoritarian saying, my view, note she says, denying the reality. In other words, denying my lived experience. She has decided there is a global democide. She has decided that governments across the world are purposefully murdering their citizens. And anyone, no evidence for it, by the way, no evidence, but anyone who deviates from that belief system must be denounced online publicly in these very heightened biblical terms, right? This is, we're just seeing the same thing. This is just, you know, she, she's gone onto the woke side in terms of her mentality. That's hard for a lot of people to accept and, and deal with. And I'm disappointed because that's someone I know personally. But believe me, it's not the first time that a, um, someone I consider a friend has turned on me um, publicly. It's happened quite a lot now. I'm used to it. And I, you know, I see... As I put it in the book, the curdling of rational minds, quite a lot. What 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 an adult approach would be, would be this is my p position, this is the evidence I have, or this is how I am interpreting this evidence. Tell me where you disagree with this. Let's have a conversation based on the evidence. But once you resort to name calling and that kind of uh, mudslinging and and denun public denunciations, which is a key element of cancel culture, uh, which I'm not saying I've been cancelled by the way. I'm saying that there are overlaps there in terms of uh methodology um once you're once you're there is it possible to have that conversation anymore i think you've all, all i think you've basically absented yourself from the conversation you've withdrawn you've become a uh well you've become a bigot you've be, a, a bigot by definition is someone who cannot tolerate the idea of someone else's opinion even existing so that's where we're at now and that's that's um well i mean you can tell me if i'm wrong but that's my view on that what do you think 
I agree. I think the fact that you get so much vitriol when you're just the most reasonable, sort of mild-mannered person is kind of almost hilarious um, that you're the you know villain to both sides. I thought Abby, who I know and like, was was mean, and I could even understand Abby and other people attacking Fraser, even though I know him, he's a nice guy, as you say. He did attack quite viciously Bridgen and any sort of so-called anti-vaxxer. And it did seem a little bit unnecessary, his rhetoric. And I think he did attack and they're going to attack back. You didn't even do that. You merely chaired a debate. So I think it was very, very unfair. But the attacks, are, like criticisms and attacks are fine. And, every, you know, even denun- denouncing me is fine if you want, but I'm not going to engage with that. I'm just going to block you and move on because I think that's there's nothing you can do at that point. No, but, I'm but saying why, she, she can do it. But she, just, she didn't she have a, a point. It was just mean. Basically, it was, just, it was just mean spirited and also myopic. And and so fine. But she's free to do it. Absolutely. Of course, everyone, everyone's free to, to do whatever they want. It doesn't encroach on my rights at all. I'll just, uh, you know, talk to the people who are still capable of critical thinking. And that's fine. Well, and, and I came across this myself. And maybe I'll just quickly and maybe we, obviously we'll end in a minute. But this is just a quick attempt to get us both in trouble at the end is that I am um, I had this with the Ofcom thing with the Mark mm. Stein thing. So I wonder if you have any thoughts on this. So I was told repeatedly I need to quit GB because Mark Stein <laughs> has quit, who I've never met, who actually, funny enough, has had the safe and effective treatment. I haven't. And early on, if we are going to do the spotless record thing, I question that his record is actually as spotless as mine if you want to go to, in terms of, you know, your sort of anti-COVID um, oh, narrative credentials. Wh- why? why that, that, that's a good point. Nick. Why do they have this expectation of total moral purity? Well, yeah, but even if we're going by that, I still have more more, more purity. But I have to now leave my job because someone else has decided to, you know, make a stand, whatever, make a stink, whatever you think to what he did. Why do I then have to leave? It's kind of like, you know, you leave your job, but they're not. They're putting email pronouns in their email signatures at their job. They see our thing, to be fair, I guess it's on telly. They see it as not a proper job. It's like, how do I survive? But the thing is, I will quit if something goes against my principles. But this is, these aren't even my principles. This is someone else's principles well, that you're projecting and his narrative. And you're saying, I have to quit. And so that, I got these periods of people. I got horrible emails and tweets about this. So. Well, yeah, you will. Because, you know, they're zealots, you know, and they, 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 they expect everyone else to do their bidding. <laughs> Basically, that's what it is. I mean, that, that's a very good example. The, why should we accept this narrative that they've put out there that Stein was uh, driven out of GB News because of his opinions? No, it's because... When you take a job as a presenter on an Ofcom regulated channel, one of the things you agree to is to abide by Ofcom regulations. It's part of the contract. You know, I mean, this is not controversial. When I was a teacher, uh, I couldn't have just spent my whole time swearing at the kids uh, and then get fired for it and then call myself a free speech martyr. It's because I wasn't doing the job. You know, it's it's it really is that simple. Yeah, and but of course, the next question is. And that, 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 that's, what, that's how I see it. You've signed up for this. Of course, if you suddenly break it, you're in trouble. But of course, the question is then, though, should Ofcom be a thing that a regulates debate. broadcasters? It's a different debate. No, it's a different right, debate. I... But on that debate, should it, should it be a thing? I think Ofcom, there's all sorts of problems with Ofcom. Yeah, I do agree with that. And I think we should be having a debate about whether Ofcom is needed. And uh, that's fine. But I cannot take a job which requires me to abide by Ofcom regulations and then just not bother because I don't want to. Because if I was that anti-Ofcom that I would think it was an affront to my own sense of dignity to go along with those regulations, then I wouldn't have taken the job to begin with, right? I think there are problems with Ofcom and there should be debates about it, but it's not something that I feel strongly enough about to not take a job that, that requires it. Because actually, it's very easy to have these 
controversial and difficult discussions within the Ofcom guidelines. I did it with the Bridgen and Fraser Myers debate. They're saying you can't have discussions about vaccine harms. You can't have discussions about even even uh, some of the more extreme claims that Bridgen makes, such as the virus was created at Fort Detrick by the DOD. Like that was discussed in that program because we had someone else there who disagreed and that and there was a, a discussion going on. It's perfectly within Ofcom regulations. There's, you know, if it were the case that the Ofcom regulations meant that there was a set of opinions I was not allowed to express or a set of words I was not allowed to say, then I would have said, no, thank you. I'm not taking this job. Right. That's not the case. I am able under the current system on GB News to have all the discussions I want to have in a completely free way. I don't consider it censorship that I'm not allowed to swear because it's a pre-Watershed show because I can have the discussions without swearing. That's totally fine. It's totally doable. So, you know, I, I, look, I think I've, I think I've answered that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And of course I agree, but they'll say, well, he would agree. He works there and they're all part of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, they'll mean, do that mind, that mind reading thing while you're a paid shill and you're, yeah. you know, all the rest. It's, it's, it's not ideal. GB exists, you know, they want it to be perfect, but it's this thing, don't let the, what is it? The perfect be the enemy of the good. GB, you know, it's, it's doing what it can within that framework. And then there are other channels. There's my podcast. There's my other, there's the weekly skeptic. There's the current thing, which is a bit more out there than weekly skeptic. There's loads of things you can go to and there's different, you know, levels of, of discourse. So I'd, I think it's basically a net positive to have GB and even, and we do our best with Ofcom. It's basically how I see it. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. And well, thanks for that, Andrew. I don't want to keep you any longer because we've already done like a, a good chunk and it was a great episode. I have to say, I mean, brilliant, brilliant stuff. And uh, hopefully people will enjoy that because you've, you've expanded on the book and we went into some ideas and things that I don't think people normally would get a chance to hear you talk about because it's normally sort of more like what's the latest stupid woke story we have to cover. <laughs> so hopefully it was a bit more in depth. And um, so what are you working on? What are you working on now? You're always working on so many things. I'm My predominant thing at the moment is the John Cleese show that I'm making with GB News, which is a, a six part series, which we're filming right at the moment. In fact, I'm off tomorrow back to the shooting location. Um, and today I have been going through rushes from last week and so it is pretty much non-stop we're still arranging guests and things like that so it's uh it's yeah it's it's a real challenge and it's really fun uh and i love working with john i think he's brilliant uh he's obviously brilliant but i think i also think he's a joy to work with um and you know i don't think that another channel would do this just they would they would get a a person of his stature and say you are free to do what you want to do make what you want make the show you want to make and that's what he's he's doing and and um yeah so that's what i'm mostly working on at the moment and how do you do so much i asked carl because the most productive people i know are carl benjamin toby young and you and i always think how do you do and obviously you've got this mega brain that's like this probably helps to have like a whatever your iq is but how other than that which might be part of the answer how do you do so much um, I, but I always feel like I'd be doing more. I really, I genuinely do. I'm, I'm often castigating myself for my laziness because there are moments in the day where I just waste time and I just think, but then maybe it's the case that I need to waste some time so that I can rest to do the other stuff. Maybe it's that I work in, in spurts, you know, that sort of thing. I don't know. I don't know. I, I can see objectively that I, I do, I do a lot, um, <laughs> but well, you know, you've got, you host Free Speech Nation, you host Headliners, a couple of, you know, best-selling books. You'll do a John Cleese show. Oh, I'll do a play. Oh, I'll launch a theatre company. Oh, I'll do a comedy club. It's just like, it's mental. Yeah, but I just do, I just do what I feel like doing at any given time within my means, within my resources. And um, uh, it might be, it might be, 
helpful that I have so few friends these days. That may be, <laughs> you know, it might That's it might be helpful that all my Life friends hack. <laughs> have driven driven away have been driven away because they think i'm an evil monster so maybe that's the positive <laughs> that's so of funny monstered but andrew i i have no friends and i do sod all so it's you know <laughs> i mean i do a little bit i do two podcasts and, you know? and headliners but i don't no, do any do. an andrew doyle amount but you know you do a lot you do a lot and you don't see it we've got it well we're all on different levels but thanks so much for doing this Andrew, and make sure you get the book, everyone, The New Puritans. Can you see it there? And it's uh, that's the hardback, but of course, get the paperback if you like, which has just come out. Get the audio that Andrew downplayed. And um, obviously go to Andrew's Twitter, which is what, Andrew underscore Doyle or something? It's Andrew Doyle underscore com. Yes, I'm sure you'll find um, it. A, leg- a legacy from when I was doing stand-up all the time and the com was comedy. Yeah, and if I mean, there's very little chance they're not already following you. But any, anywhere else you'd like to send people that we might not have thought of? No, not really. Just to say that, you know, we do run Comedy Unleashed every second Tuesday of the month at Bethnal Green. We're also now running it the first Friday of every month in Leeds at the Hi-Fi Club. So uh, if you want to see some uh, comedy by interesting acts who are not necessarily conforming to the groupthink of the industry, that's the place you go. Uh, yeah, that's that's about it, really. All right. Excellent. And uh, I always I don't like doing this with the guest here, but since we're mates, yeah, sometimes I do a separate video. I'll just say, leave a five-star review on the podcast, subscribe, tell a friend. We've got the episodes on YouTube, Nick Dixon Comedy. It's on all audio platforms. Tell everyone about the current thing. Support the current thing. It's a based on the meme is the name. It's kind of a joke. And um, thanks for doing the show, Andrew. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.